and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. Covid-19 is continuing to have a devastating impact on the opera sector, particularly here in the UK. We will of course return to the fallout of the current crisis in future episodes, but today we're going to focus on the ways in which artists and organisations have responded to keep opera alive and innovating during this time. We have five interviews coming up in this episode, starting with Scottish opera's Antonia Bain. On the 18th of June, Scottish will be premiering their first opera made specifically for film, The Narcissistic Fish. Although not conceived or created during the pandemic, it's a project that has very much come into its own in recent months. So, um, Antonia, just before we kind of get into the uh, narcissistic fish, just tell us a little bit more about your kind of role with uh, Scottish Opera and what it is that you do kind of more on a, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, um, well, I started off um, at Scottish Opera in 2015 as their digital content producer, one of their first digital content producers. Um, and essentially that role has meant that I make films for the promotion of the sort of stage shows so um, and also the touring shows as well. So I get to interview all kinds of people from across the company and create kind of short sort of documentaries um, and kind of more promotional sort of little adverts as well. So yeah, that's what I do. So this project has obviously come into its own during um, lockdown rather fortuitously. Um, but is, it, is this sort of thing kind of something that you and Scottish have been thinking about for a long time, sort of how to get opera into film and, you know, I suppose particularly with your role, how to show opera off the stage on the screen? Yeah, I think when I first started um, at Scottish Opera, I obviously I'm from a film background, so I had never seen an opera before. And I think um, very much when I first started, I thought this is definitely something we can do in a digital um, form that's not necessarily there to promote the shows in a way, um, that it's kind of a piece in itself. And so I've always been very interested in it. And I think when I first started, there was some inclination that um, we would try and do we would try and do something digital of some description. What what that would be, we just weren't sure of. Um, and there's certainly, I think, lots more lots more scope. Um, within the opera world to create more digital works. So this uh, opera film is called The Narcissistic Fish, an amazing title. Um, tell us a little bit uh, what, what it's about. So, yeah, so it's um, it's about um, three chefs who work at the title um, of the, the film, The Narcissistic Fish. It's a restaurant um, in the least part of Edinburgh. Um, written in Scots, it kind of tells the story of these uh, three characters, two brothers and um, the sort of very talented chef Belle and, and kind of uh, sort of an argument ensues after a phone call um, and yeah, that's kind of what, what the rough storyline is, yeah. So most of our listeners will be familiar with the process of kind of putting an opera on a stage but can you just kind of very briefly go through how you put together a film like this? I think particularly, you know, obviously with it being musical and having to write the score and all those sorts of things how does this kind of process go from start to to the uh, the finished product yeah, yeah it was really and it was really interesting because i think we were all trying to work out how to do it ourselves but the the main um thing was that uh, sam the composer wanted to um create the score as he went along so we started off he created a vocal score to begin with um, first of all, sorry, I storyboarded the whole thing. Once we had our libretto, um, we storyboarded it all. And then I handed that over to Sam. He then created a, a vocal score. 
there was a click track was made. The singers then recorded um, the vocal score in a recording studio. Once we filmed um, inside a sort of film set, we then um, got the singers to lip sync back to what they could hear of their, their own voices. Um, what I remember of that was it was quite loud because <laughs> they had to, to make it look real, they had to sing um, as well. They couldn't just, just open and close their mouths. They had to look as if they were actually singing so we could hear it twice <laughs> in the, on the film set. Um, and then after it was all edited and put together, the, um, the rest of the score was put in, um, which was fascinating for me because um, I, I had really no idea what Sam was thinking um, in terms of what it was all going to sound like. So it was fantastic to, to hear it finally without the click track on it. Um, but um, all of the score, interestingly, was done, all of the rest of the score was, was done during the lockdown. Um, and uh, it was all done digitally using, I can't remember what program it was, but it was all done digitally. So it's interesting that you mentioned about obviously kind of having to go away and record it and then and then lip sync back. Um, so I suppose when you're actually f- filming it, you, you're very much defined by that recording that you've already made. I mean, was was that was that kind of quite limiting, or is that kind of just the way it has to be for film? Um, it doesn't have to be that way. I think that was the way that we did it. I think um, if you wanted to do it live, it has a sort of major impact on one the expense of making the film and how you make the film. You'd have to use you know, there's different ways of doing it. You'd have to use several different cameras. But this is the way that we found that fit best with the budget that we had and also just in terms of how we were creating that story. Um, Yeah, it would have been lovely to have that live um, aspect to it, but I think we did quite well with the the lip syncing. Um, It was quite hard. I think some of the singers, um, most of the singers coped with it quite well. Um, but I do know, I think, um, I think it was Charlie had said it would have been nice to, I think you forget sometimes what you did in the recording studio and then trying to transfer that because they had to do it exactly as they had done previously. So, um, and it was important to get it right in the recording studio because as I said to them, if the emotions aren't right in the recording studio, it won't be right when we go into the actual um, set and try to match up. Um, as well so yeah so that was quite a different process for them um, and it was um, it was quite um, you know it took quite a lot of time to get right as well yeah that's really interesting because obviously one of the things that people say you know why they love opera and, and theatre is is that is that liveness it's that ability to just slightly change things or tweak things or hold something on but as you say kind of in that film environment it's a completely completely different kind of um, kettle of fish sort of no pun intended of how you kind of have to kind of put it together um i mean can you can you equate this to to live opera or is this very much in your head a very different sort of kind of product strangely um i personally i think it i, I think i can equate it to opera um it's, it's really strange that obviously the live the live experience i know that um definitely hearing the singers on the set it was slightly slightly different seeing her you know, seeing them all sing and then having that transferred onto film. Um, I suppose it is a different thing. I still feel that when I watch this film back, I feel like I'm watching an opera um, because you're getting that, you know, you're getting that emotional impact and that emotional story. I also would like to say that I think the one thing that Sam and I talked about from the very start was to, even though it's got lighter moments, just to try and take this um, film quite seriously in a way because quite a lot of... Um, Sort of opera on film 
that you know has been sort of started uh, new for YouTube kind of doesn't do it very seriously and kind of does it in a very comedic way. So um, I think that's the important aspect of it is, is treating the art form with with quite a bit of respect as well on film. Um, but yeah, there will be. I think obviously there is a major difference between seeing something live and seeing something on film. But hopefully, um, you know, people will will get that opera experience, but just in a different way. I'm interested with your hat on as a as a kind of a filmmaker and a digital person. You know, obviously, as you said, you know, a lot of companies have been releasing filmed performances of of staged works over the last you know few weeks. We've been doing it for years, but but particularly recently. I mean, do you think kind of going forward that there might be kind of uh, better or, or different ways of capturing live performances through film so it does kind of react more to the medium of film rather than just sort of sticking a camera on a stage uh, absolutely and i think with this um the way that i wanted to film it was very different from the way that you film something on a theater um yeah i think uh, i mean some some of the live stage performances are beautifully filmed nowadays i've, I've seen quite a few especially <laughs> especially now that they're releasing all of these kind of um, staged operas and they're beautifully filmed. But yeah, I think I think with this, there's a sense that this was, um, in my head, was specifically designed to be a short film that just so happened to be an opera. And there's so many things, so many beautiful things that you can do on film that would translate really well to having an opera singer. I mean, take, for example, there are, some uh, fantastic musicals that interest me that there's not more opera on film in, in that way. Other artists have also taken to creating new operas on film over recent months. The Opera Story, after seeing their new production of Pandora's Box postponed due to COVID-19, have been creating a series of short opera scenes available to view on their YouTube channel. They're hugely creative and very entertaining. Our next interview is with the director Ella Marchment who has assembled a huge international team of composers, writers, singers and directors to create Opera Harmony. So, Ella, Opera Harmony, uh, what is it? How did it come about? Uh, so the story of Opera Harmony was I had taken over directing a show at Dutch National Opera when everything uh, shut down. We were due to go to public performances actually the, the weekend, so it was Friday the 13th when, people, when, when it stopped. Um, I went back to my rented accommodation in Harlem and I just felt like I, I suddenly had had all my purpose removed for that moment in time and I wanted to try and find a way to create a way that would let basically for me to feel slightly less lonely in this time. So I just put out an informal post on Facebook saying to my friends and my network basically whether anyone would be interested in creating something online and just seeing what we could do in this time when all these theatres have been closed and I was so overwhelmed to kind of wake up the next morning and see that over 200 people had got in touch with me and I basically jotted down all the names and I realised that actually I was looking at complete creative teams and I realised then that you know probably one of my strengths from travelling around being freelance for the last decade is that I, I know so many people from kind of around the world and actually we could use this time to be, I, I could then put people together and we could create in ways that we wouldn't necessarily be able to create normally, i.e. basically having a really global um, relationship over the, the creative teams that were assembled and trying to work with people that you would never normally have the opportunity to work with in creating new operas with a shared theme of either distance or community 
two two things that were really kind of featuring in our lives at that time. And have you been surprised by how many people have, have got involved? I think, you know, mainly because this is obviously very different and it'll be out of a lot of people's comfort zones, you know, kind of filming these operas, recording them remotely. Yeah, I'm really shocked at how brave everyone's been. You know, we're we're not just creating online, we're also asking people to work in a completely different way than they've trained for or have previously experienced. And I think it has been quite daunting for all of us, but there's been a really collective... Um, feeling behind all of this you know we have these kind of fortnightly zooms where people get together and everybody's sharing ideas and very early on in the process i put together all the synopses of the different pieces and we've had this idea that when people have rehearsed if people have wanted to view other people's rehearsals they can do that and get in touch with each other so even though it it does feel daunting in many many ways it feels like we're all kind of collectively coming together to to share in the process and as much as it is about a performance product at the end, the, the most important thing for me is actually the process and us adapting and learning through doing, really. So just tell us a little bit more about how that process for each piece works. Um, and I'm particularly interested from the point of view of the, the singers and the director, because obviously sort of directing something remotely and filming it, again, it's all very sort of out of the comfort zone sort of sort of stuff for people. Yeah, it, I mean, it's been very different for everyone, actually. Each team, there's now 20 teams creating pieces, and I've I've kind of let each team go in their own way. And I've, luckily, because I've done quite a lot of work with technology before, I've got quite a good network of people who've been able to support this. So I've basically said to the teams, like, you tell me what you need, and I'll try and make it happen. And it just seems that a lot of people have had connections either to people who are good at editing and... We've had um, someone who helped do the sound mixing on my Magic Flute production that I did in Copenhagen. It's basically looking after all of the sound and prepared a guide for all of the singers and instrumentalists to use about how to make a good vocal recording. Um, I've also been directing some scenes for Guildhall at this time. So it's give, doing that's given me a really good insight about the process of how to basically we need to get the audio first and then we record the video once we've got a, a good audio recording. But that said, you know, these 19 pieces are very different. Some are kind of almost purely animation-based. There's one that is entirely animation, uh, which is with uh, Ted Bosey and Philippe Alram, which Lottie Betstein is singing. And, you know, that piece is about how buildings take on characters in, your, in our lives, and that's purely animation, that piece. And then others are, are recording separate things, a bit more like music videos where the singing is detached from the visual and then there's some there's one conversation about two people on zoom so that's obviously very much circumstantial so ev everybody's taken very different approaches which is why it's so interesting actually to see how they'll all come together so you've started to release the first kind of couple of films i mean what's the timeline of release looking like you know i mean how long can we be you know waiting for and uh, enjoying these uh, these short films so this is the the plot twist i guess because obviously you know when we plan opera we we're normally looking at something that's been that you know we know where we're going to perform at the end and obviously me writing does anyone want to create anything i had no idea really about the end goal with it and um i mean i've been very fortunate that opera vision have actually broadcast some of my work before and i obviously knew nick payne and luca shaughnessy 
And the, I guess the, the news is that we were originally going to release them all on YouTube, on our own personal YouTube, but obviously I didn't have the, the audience following that. So actually, across August, we will be releasing a set amount per week on Opravision and... Um, we are also going to be, we're, we're designing some form of public um, means of engagement where they, where the public can, can specify their preference for a piece. So it, essentially we're using it as a bit of kind of audience development and research as well. And the, at the end of the process, there will be three audience prizes awarded to these operas. So that's the news. It's obviously very early days, not just in this project, but sort of really appreciating of, of how opera is going to change at the end of at the end of all of this i mean i mean what, what do you think the legacy of something like this will be in terms of how opera will work with digital and, and film going on into the into the future i mean my my biggest motivation in creating this was almost to build a time capsule of this very strange time where we were suddenly completely asked to rethink what we were doing in our practice there's I mean, for me, and I'm sure for most of my peers, there's nothing that will ever replace that experience and the exhilaration of a live performance. But how, asking the question of how best we could capture that over this time when we were forced to kind of be at home was the kind of biggest interest for me. I think also now, obviously, especially until there's a vaccine in place, you know, performance has now become quite an uncertain entity. And the fact is that, you know, everybody involved in this has embraced using utilizing technology in their practice and especially the composers with a lot of um electronics which they maybe wouldn't normally have written for i think that you know the idea is that everybody will come away feeling more confident engaging with technology in the future and also knowing the process and how it can work in greater depth as well as creating new work during the pandemic companies have had to completely rethink their festivals and artistic programs the Tete Tete Festival and their artistic director Bill Banks-Jones have reimagined this year's festival and have produced their manifesto for a real opera festival in an imaginary world. You can read their manifesto on the Tete Tete website. Grange Park Opera might have lost their 2020 summer season, so instead they've managed to find a new one. Their found season combines socially distanced performances in their theatre with at-home recitals by the likes of Bryn Terfel and Simon Keenleyside. Over in Denmark, the new artistic director of the Copenhagen Opera Festival, Amy Lane, has been busy creating a summer season of 100 opera moments. So Amy, before we talk about what you've done this summer, just very briefly tell us about the Copenhagen Opera Festival. What's it do? What does it do? Well, the Copenhagen Opera Festival brings opera to as many people in as many forms as possible. So we perform in a variety of venues, and the idea is we have the beautiful city of Copenhagen as our backdrop, as our opera house. So it's not just one space. We get to utilise all the unusual options and you get to walk past opera by mistake. How lovely that is. Um, and we bring it to as many people as we can, involving incredible artists, world class international artists, creative directors, designers. It's an incredible melting pot of, of all the different forms of opera too. New opera, new works, new commissions, classic operas that you will already know the story of, classic tunes that you'll recognise already. But also it's about offering to people what it means to take part in an opera. And that doesn't mean just as a singer, that means as a director. What does it mean to be a conductor? 
How do you design an opera? What does it mean to be a lighting designer? So we're looking at all the many, many different forms and, and um, art forms that collide to make opera. And uh, in my heart, the whole point of an opera festival is to bring opera to as many people as possible. So opera can be for you. If you've never been, I bet you've heard secretly a bit of opera on the radio or in a film. And I would love to link those two worlds together. I would like to bring opera to people who've never had opera in their lives before, as well as offering all the different forms to all the people who already love it. So that's a little bit about what we're doing right now. So you, you were appointed um, last year and you, I'm sure you put a lot of planning into this year's festival, which has now changed somewhat. Uh, tell us about uh, your kind of a, a hundred moments of opera that's, that's going to be going on this summer instead of uh, the original programme. Yes, yeah, so the original programme is is and was vast. Now, um, we have been fortunate enough that we can postpone practically everything that should have been happening in 2020 over to 2021, which is great news because opera planning takes a long time. Opera does, well, it doesn't pop up of its own accord. It takes a lot of planning in terms of design, in terms of booking the artists. Um, and uh, we have a lot of people that we would like to make sure that we can achieve the work that we've all set out to achieve together, albeit a year later. So a lot of our 2020 planning moves to 2021. However, I felt in my first year, how could it possibly be that the Copenhagen Opera Festival would be silent. I just felt that wasn't possible. Um, now, the corona crisis has changed our world, and I think it's changed our world forever. It's, it's a, a terrible, terrible thing to be navigating. And we all need each other <laughs> in a time where you need support and you need art to keep <laughs> your, your heart full of, of music and joy we can't be together and that's incredibly hard but we can in different ways and so I think that what's so incredible is seeing around the world people's needs to gather in alternate ways where we can't gather as crowds we're going to find a way to create differently for you so you're seeing a lot of digital work uh, but for us our 100 opera moments what we can do in Copenhagen is offer very short pop-up moments um, with social distancing for the artists with social distancing for the um, audience just so that it can, there can be song even for 15 minutes in one space and then you move on and it's gone so what we're doing is we have um uh, our freelance artists, which we're hiring to appear in teams. And over five days, we're going to have 20 teams going out, performing five times per team in 100 different locations. There are 30 spaces up for public application. So you can write in and say, I tell you what, I would love to send this to my parents who would have been at the opera, but they can't because we can't gather at the moment. Could you send a moment to them? And we could be appearing on their street or knocking at their front door. And that way you can you can have dialogue with your audience as well, which is so important. What is the most exciting thing about opera? It is the transaction of offering what you've made, your opera to the audience and that feeling of sharing it. It's oh, live opera. Oh, that lovely thing where you're all in the same space and, and you share with each other these incredible stories and, and moments. So we're going to be sharing 100 opera moments around the city over five days, only short ones. But it will just mean that song was all around the city and uh, my first season wasn't silent. So that's what we're that's what we're planning on. Yes. Well, I think amazing how 
quickly been able to change tack and as you say kind of actually bring some live opera um that's not on a screen but actually in people's streets and back gardens is is, is fantastic well actually i have to say the, the quick changing of tack was um not so quick we actually went through five rounds of planning because of course all the time um you know the the corona climate is is updating and Every, every country is actually moving at different rates, of course, and you're responding constantly to new rules and new guidelines. So we, we went through a process of, of kind of five rounds of what, what was possible. And in the end, I wanted to make sure that what we presented was possible, whatever the guidelines were, so that we could do it, whatever happened, social distancing would be in place, it would be safe, enjoyable, and everybody could feel free for a moment. So that is what we ended up uh, creating. Now, opera on the screen I mean we go we have incredible times going to the cinema we have incredible times watching films on our on our laptops on our televisions and it is incredible to still have contact with opera through our screens and live opera through our screens too that mixture of being able to get it in person and go live into the streets is wonderful but also we need that mix of where people can't do that we we do also need to be seeing it online and it's amazing how opera companies are um, evolving according to what needs to happen in this moment. Of course, we are all heading back. Our end game is that we are all back in the same room together. We are back to that communal experience of, of sharing live art. But I think all of our journeys in different countries will be happening at slightly different times. So where things are already getting going, what beacons of hope those are. Universities and music conservatoires have had to find new ways to move teaching and training online. Instead of their usual summer season of operas, British Youth Opera and their executive director Nicola Candlish are readying to launch an innovative two-week online training programme this summer. So Nicola, the last time we spoke it was April, um, just as everyone was sort of fully getting to grips with the, the Covid crisis. Um, what, what's been going on with, with British Youth Opera since then over the past couple of months? We all hoped, I think like a lot of organisations did, that by September we'd be back to something resembling normal. It became clear quite quickly that that wasn't going to be the case. So we had to unpick our season and that's a real blow for so many young people who had applied and been successful. We'd fully cast both shows, um, we'd done our music staff and it was a great thing for them to have got the place in the first place and a lot of people were delighted and looking forward to working towards it and to, to sort of pull the rug out from under again because no doubt they'd lost student shows as well um, was a horrible thing to have to do but um, everyone you know resilient that we are we are coming up with a plan to do some online training in the summer holidays. Yeah so, so tell us a little bit about that I saw the announcement the other day um, but essentially trying to take a two-week training season online what's the uh, what's the plan? Okay, so we thought we couldn't predict what the situation with UK lockdown might be by August. So we thought to be corona-proof and stay completely online. So we picked our first day of rehearsals, which was to have been the 10th of August at the beginning, and to run for two weeks. Um, that's a sort of broad outline at the moment, because we are in the process of setting everything up. And we've been really overwhelmed by the amount of professionals, both alumni and not, who've come forward and said, oh my goodness, can I help? I'd love to help, please let me help. So we're collating all of those fantastic people right now to see what we can pull together. Um, we've got something like 86 singers 
who should have done workshops and another 50 who should have been in the shows. So there's a lot of young people to try and provide something for. We are going to try and give something to anyone who has been successful in getting a role. And that's going to take a variety of forms. Some of that's going to be Zoom sessions that are more career-based and discussion and Q&A and advice. And some of that might be masterclasses, some of it might be workshops. Some, because we have student repetitors as well, there might be student repetitors working with student singers, um, all of that kind of thing. And as well as that, we're going to work with our non-singing roles, such as directors, designers, stage management, production management, production assistants, uh, lighting, costume, makeup, etc., and try and provide something that's useful to them, which is something that I haven't really seen a great deal of yet in the wider opera community, because we are usually the only company that does a, a lot of training in that area, because it's really important to remember that BYO is not just about the singers and the pianists and the conductors, it's also about directors, designers, etc. So that's a, a slightly new thing for us because you know we've watched what other companies have done online and we've looked at what the conservatoires have done and we are you know taking as much advice and things as we can so yeah we're looking forward to it but it's going to be a challenge yeah well i think it's brilliant you've also been able to put something together and as you say kind of serve those people that you were hoping to work with anyway but you know particularly great to hear that it's not not just about the singers um which is a non-singer myself you know it's uh, it's good that the rest of us are are remembered um I mean, yeah. as you say, it's, there's still some some planning to do. But I mean, how how well do you think a digital offer can hold up against the the kind of in person offer that you know we're all we're all used to? Well, I think it, it'll help at the moment, but I don't think it's the only solution for the future. I think my personal opinion is that I'm desperate to get back and see a show as soon as the the rope. I'll be there. I am in my hazmat suit, ready to watch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but and face to face training is just impossible to recreate online. We can do a lot, we can do a lot of good work online, but at some point we are going to all have to gather to do good work. Um, I do feel particularly sorry for people on a one-year master's course, which we get quite a lot of, who've done one-year master's in direction or um, stage management. In particular, those two courses who've said, we finished our course in, in March, we're getting online teaching, but we haven't been able to do any online, any shows, which was what we were there for. So young people are saying they're going to get their diploma, their one-year course, but they're not going to actually have learned a great deal of how to put it into practice. Mm. So I think we, we need to look at that for the future. And um, if anybody wants to talk to me well about that, please get in touch because, you know, there's a lot of scope. And if we all put our heads together, we can come up with something really spectacular. Mm. Uh, when we spoke a couple of months ago, you were talking more broadly about what you hope to do with, with BYO, you know, particularly to to open up um, avenues to participation from some of those people and groups of people who usually might be, you know, kind of you know, excluded from from some of this work. Um, I mean, do you think kind of going digitally is, is a good way, not just now, but in the future of BYO, actually being able to open up um, access to, to the work that you do and, you know, broaden who's able to kind of take advantage of, of training opportunities? Definitely. If we have a programme that is part online and part face-to-face, for example, career advice can all can very easily be done over Zoom. You know, different professionals can be on Zoom and a bunch of young trainees can be on Zoom and then you can be anywhere. And some of the barriers with BYO is that if you don't live in London or the South East, it can be very difficult 
to access the training and we are always looking at that and we do provide travel bursaries and free accommodation if they need it but if it's a possibility of offering training at different points of the year that might point people in different directions and help then certainly being able to deliver that online is going to help everybody. I mean do you think there might be useful things for the artist to kind of get out of this digital way of working I mean I'm thinking you know even before all of this happened so much more was was happening digitally is this kind of the opportunity to really kind of get to grips with something that's surely going to be kind of key to their careers for years and years to come definitely I think um, all artists should learn to work with cameras and microphones I think an interesting thing for singers that might come out of this is the necessity to use a microphone uh, for, for example if there's going to be outside performances uh, if you don't mic those, it can be very tricky to hear what's going on. So this, this kind of thing should be incorporated into training going forward. Certainly can't go back to, well, operators only performed in theatres, that's it. I don't think we can go back to that. If it's opera history you're into, then one of our former guests, the conductor John Andrews, has put together a brilliant six-part History of Opera YouTube series, equally informative for beginners and experts alike. See the show notes for a link to the videos. With my company, Northern Opera Group, we've been researching the 300-year history of opera in our home city of Leeds, and have been making a series of documentary videos focusing on a particular opera or time period. In our most recent episode, we covered the first ring cycle in the city, which arrived in 1911, and spoke to the last man to conduct the full ring cycle in Leeds, former music director of Opera North, Richard Farnes. So the Rang Cycle has quite a unique hold on the imagination of, of opera audiences. It has quite a special place in the in the repertoire. What do you think the significance of an opera company deciding to, to stage a Ring Cycle is? No opera company is going to engage in the, the process of a Ring Cycle without thinking very hard first, because it's the sheer scale of the thing. Um, it's the largest project that any opera company in fact any musical organization can can undertake um there aren't just the obvious costs of um uh expense financial considerations but also it's the the sheer organizational complexity of of staging the four works and what the danger of, of that is that if you put on a ring cycle, it affects everything else during your season. Everything else tends to get sort of curtailed or shoved off into the corner because so much energy needs to go in, into this. And I suppose it's for that reason that um, a lot of companies who don't stage the ring cycle on a regular basis will stage each of its individual four components separately first and then put them all together in a full cycle. So it's quite common to, to get the individual components performed separately. And then um, you, you've got an opportunity to rehearse each piece uh, more thoroughly with both the orchestra, but also all the different cast members. And if you can imagine trying to put on a cycle with four pretty large scale operas, if you're putting on a cycle together, you, you know, in a way you'll, you'll need four casts a lot of whom sing in more than one of the operas some of whom sing in three of the operas and so they're all being called into simultaneous rehearsals in different rehearsal rooms so it, it's just a logistical uh complexity that makes it a very significant undertaking and what about you as a, as a conductor is there something particularly significant about about kind of getting your hands on a, on a ring cycle do you feel it was a particularly sort of 
important or kind of significant you know milestone uh, as a conductor um i approached it with a certain amount of prepa- trepidation i mean <laughs> I, to be honest i hadn't conducted much wagner before that i'd played some on the piano i'd also um been a, a sort of a member of an orchestra that had played uh, a sort of orchestral excerpts of the piece so i was very familiar with a lot of the uh, material uh, in it, on its basic level but of course again to learn to, to learn something on that scale is a big undertaking but having said that Wagner makes it very as easy as you could imagine in the sense that he's building up a series of motifs which then repeats so you're encountering the same music in the fourth opera of the cycle mm-hmm. Goethe Demerung as you did in Rheingold, right, right at the beginning, you know, 14 hours before in the cycle. And yet the music, the motifs are transformed in such an extraordinary way that it's, it's an immensely satisfying thing to undertake. So you're, in a sense, you're following Wagner's own journey through the composition of this piece. Um, and the linking of rhythm, rhythmic and melodic ideas uh, gives it an enormous sense of structure, which makes it, I found, uh, a little bit easier to absorb as a conductor. When you're conducting that kind of full cycle, particularly I'm thinking in the space of a week, I mean, how much do you kind of think about conducting them as a whole, sort of 15 hours of music? And how much is it about just sort of taking each piece, you know, the, the, the pacing, the nuance of kind of each piece on its, on its own, or how much can you fit them together? When you're performing the entire cycle in a week, you do both. You take both the idea of taking each individual uh, piece for that particular evening. We then always had a day off in between, which is very helpful. Um, And then but but Wagner himself also prevents you from just getting stuck on one item. He the music leads you so inexorably forward into the remainder of the cycle as i've said about the repeating of thematic material the development of thematic material that you're constantly thinking as you're conducting say valkyra you're thinking you're reminded of things happening two operas ahead in goethe demerung uh and so the composer himself writes it in such a linear fluid way that you cannot but refer to the whole cycle psychologically as as your point um i think also from a stamina point of view you approach a week of performances very much aware that my goodness you know i'm starting tuesday thursday uh, you know saturday and monday or whatever and i'm i've got to make sure that i can see to the end of goethe demerung in terms of pacing so it's both a physical and a mental exercise and i would say that you know the composer helps a lot with it now, these performances were filmed for television and online, um, but also there was a camera pointed at you, the entire uh, thing, which you can watch on YouTube, 15 hours of you conducting the ring cycle. Well, were there ever any moments where you were conducting and, and just thought, there's a camera pointed at me right now? Were there ever kind of those moments where even for a split second you, you sort of got distracted by the fact that it was there? When we discussed having the, the conductor cam, as it was called, uh, it, it was obviously in the rehearsals and there was a certain amount of experimentation. Um, the thing about a conductor cam is it had to be situated quite close to me, but also, therefore, it also required quite a wide angle lens. 
And anybody who knows anything about photography knows that a wide angle lens stuck quite close to a face is not flattering. So, I, I mean, I wasn't too concerned about that, uh, but it did occur to me that it was going to be a very strange view. And it was probably going to be from sort of slightly when they positioned it just in front of my music stand. Uh, I could see it was basically going to be looking out my nostrils. So <laughs> I did have certain sort of concerns. But on the other hand, um, you know, we discussed it, we refined it in the rehearsals. And once you get into the within the first minute of the first performance of the first opera, you just forget about it. You get completely lost in what you're doing. And I never thought twice about it after that until people then pointed out that there was 15 hours of me online <laughs> to be watched. And then I'd, I've never watched it and I probably never will. <laughs> I think one of the things the wide angle does, it gives you an extraordinary sort of looking wingspan, which is what I quite like. You know, there's real sort of gravity yeah. to, to that. Um, yeah. But I think when I, when I was sitting in the audience watching it, I, you could obviously tell that you had your back to the singers and whatnot, but you, you couldn't really, you couldn't tell in terms of a performance experience. But looking at the conductor cam, it's very obvious that you, you can't see the singers. Whenever you're sort of bringing them in, you've got to sort of gesture to a, to a camera, to the monitor that they're looking at. And um, yeah. I mean, did you, did you feel that you could have that connection with the singers and orchestras that you, you really wanted? Or was there something about the, the technology that, that just meant it just wasn't you weren't able to quite get that communication that you, you might have you know ideally wanted the, the 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 technological sort of black and white communication was very much through a video screen so it was a television pointed at me and the singers had it relayed to them from the back of the hall so technically they didn't have to turn around and that was very much a conceit of the the production such as it was that they even when the singers were singing to their neighbouring singer, neighbouring soloists, they wouldn't just turn and face them, except in particularly exceptional circumstances. So the idea was that they would create a type of triangle with the audience. They would sing straight out to the audience uh, and via the audience to their neighbour, say, on their right. So the audience was very much a part of, of that conceit. And for that same reason, the singers were not also going to turn, generally speaking, they were not going to turn in to look at the conductor either. So that's the, the basic technical aspect of it. But in, in reality, um, they were very aware of what I was doing um, because there was a sort of certain, if you like, side sight that they could see. Also, it was... I've never had a, quite such an experience as this before, but it did feel a lot of the time like making chamber music. Despite the fact there was a vast orchestra and in Goethe Demmer and even a chorus as well, um, the singers were sort of close enough that we could... I They listened incredibly intensely to the orchestra. The orchestra and myself, we listened incredibly intensely to what they were doing. And so we sort of made music as it as it went along. And, and for instance, we had a um, in the early days when we were doing the individual cycles, we had uh, a soprano who went ill at very short notice uh, for Brunhilde, and we had to fly somebody else in. And this was for a live radio performance. This was for Valkyra. Now, you, you can't if somebody arrives on the afternoon to sing a performance later that day. You can't possibly rehearse it properly. So we just the soprano and I just talked, said we just need to go in there. 
you listen to me, I'll listen to you, and we'll see how we go. And that's what happened. And in a sense, the fact that we were able to do that, it, it meant that there was a sort of freedom to the performance, even with an orchestra that size, um, that made it feel like chamber music. And I would say that that applied, certainly by the time we did the entire cycle, that sort of osmosis, that sort of intense listening, reacting to everything around you, um, worked extremely well. And again, the composer really helps with that because the way the orchestral writing is the is is the foundation of everything. The vocal lines so much in the ring ride over the this continuous sort of orchestral strata. They they weave in and out of it. They jump on the train. They jump off the train. Uh, but the train keeps moving. It doesn't stop at a station. So very much it's, it, you need singers who are who are, are very good at listening, at spontaneous reaction to what they hear. And you need an orchestra that does the same in return. And, and that worked extremely well. And how did you find that that listening again with them sort of singing away from you and that sort of distance? Did you did you find that sort of orally you were able to kind of again have that kind of connection and listening that, you know, you'd have wanted ideally? There, there were plenty of times when I would love to have been able to hear the singers a lot more than I could. There were those. I don't know if you, you have that experience sometimes when you're driving a car on an incre- through a sort of rainstorm on the motorway and you've got to overtake a great big juggernaut. And you're overtaking and there are times when there's so much spray coming up from the juggernaut that you can't really, even with the windscreen wipers going full pelt, you can't really see very much in front of you. And then you come out the other side and all's well and you're in lane and you've got past the vehicle. There were little moments orally when it felt a little bit (laughs) like there were moments when there was so much going on, so much complexity and sound and colour in the orchestra. I simply couldn't hear the singers, but I had to trust that they were there. Um, And then we came out the other side and we were in the same place. It it was very much that sort of feeling. So as a lot of the time, I would ideally have preferred to have a, a better oral communication. The other point is that um, you realise when you're conducting something under those circumstances that as a conductor in the theatre, when the singers are in front of you up on a stage, you realise how much you interpret their breathing from what you see of their faces. You can see uh, satisfaction, pleasure, panic, terror in people's eyes. It might be dramatic terror, but it also might be somebody having a an off night and is running out of breath and you need to help them. Now, of course, that sort of visual um, symbol of watching a singer breathe, how long, how long they're going to take, whether they're struggling, whether they're at ease and so on, is completely lost in these circumstances. So, again, you're trying to take uh, everything from the oral signal rather than sharing it out between the oral and the visual. Uh, now, final question, and you can say the ring cycle if you want to, um, but if you're going to pick one highlight of your kind of time with Opera North, your kind of abiding leads Opera memory, um, what would it be? <laughs> it's very very difficult to pick one. I mean, if I obviously the ring occupies a big place in it simply because it took so many years and it was the final thing that I did as music director, but Having said that, there were other very important moments for me. Peter Grimes, the production, Philip Lloyd's production that we did, 
I loved doing um, The Golden Girl of the West, the Fanciulla del West of Puccini, uh, which was one of the last pieces I conducted up there. In fact, I, um, certainly one of the last in the theatre as a music director. And another work that I particularly enjoyed doing, but we also did it in the concert hall, was Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle with um, Sir John Tomlinson and Sally Burgess. And we recorded that as well. And that, that was a great highlight, too. It's very difficult to pick one above any other, so I'm chickening out of that. If there are things you've been enjoying during lockdown or have found the response from an artist or company to be particularly inspiring, then please do share them with us. We're on Facebook at OperaCast, Twitter at OperaCastPod, Instagram at OperaCast, and by email, info at operacast.co.uk. Stay safe, and we'll be back with you again soon.